Welcome folks, Ian Andrews here. Just letting you know, this episode of Bibliophiles is another installment in our Lit Period series, where we take you through a whirlwind tour of Western literature's literary periods. As always, we've already taken notes for you, so that you can just sit back and enjoy the show. To download those notes, just visit our website at www.centerforlit.com forward slash lit period six. That's www.centerforlit.com forward slash L-I-T-P-E-R-I-O-D, the number six. We've also provided a link to them in the show notes for this episode. Without further ado, friends, welcome to Lit Period. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everyone. Glad to be with you once again. Time for another edition of Lit Period. Fast becoming my favorite version of Bibliophiles. Because I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. For a very specific reason, and that is that during Lit Period, I get to join Ian and Emily in lobbing humor bricks over the wall to where Missy and Megan are <laughs> dropping knowledge on us from their ha, deep ha, academic ha. study ha, ha, ha. of the history of very English well. language literature. Am I right? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're right. Should we do that again today? And I'm speaking to Ian and Emily here. Megan and Miss, you guys just wait till we've decided. Get ready to live, people. I got some knowledge Yeah, bombs. I think we should. I got some <laughs> quotes today. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's go ahead and begin. It's, it's lit period, a special version of Bibliophiles that we like to indulge in every once in a while. Adam Andrews uh, leading the Center for Lit crew. Happy to be joined as usual by my wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hey. Hey. Good to be with you guys. Um, as I said, we're going to, the, the three of us, me and Ian and Emily, are going to stand outside the wall while the two of you uh, go literary. And this isn't to say that we don't have literary things to say, because we do. But we'll just see how it goes. Lit period is the version of Bibliophiles where we take a period in English language literature and talk about its its who, its what, its when, its where, and then in the end, if we get around to it, its why. And so let's go ahead and do that with the period on the docket for today, naturalism. Naturalism. You may have heard the label before, and we're going to talk about that thing to which it refers, starting now. All right. So I'm going to begin with the when. The when. Who can tell me the when of literary naturalism? You start off, Mom, and I'll, I'll chip in. Okay. Um, American naturalism, 1865 to 1914. Wait, stop. 1865, 1914. So that's end of the Civil War to World War I. Mm -hmm. So in between the Civil War and World War I in yep. America. Yeah. And the, the who, I, I'm going to, um, oh. before we get into the who as to the authors that were actually writing, I want to mention a little something about the who coined the term naturalism. Is that okay with you? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. We're not skipping so quickly over when, though, are we? We I got. I got a lot more on oh, when. You go so for when. Megan, on, you stop. You go ahead Let's and talk, talk about, about when. the when, and then I want to talk about Emile Zola. Emile Zola. Okay. Yeah, you can't start the who yet. Yeah, Don't start ahead. the who. Okay. 
Go ahead, Megan. Right. Right, I got this. I got this one question. Oh, I, I got a little stage fright, you guys. Okay, so what I know about the when of naturalism, I actually had it pegged for starting in 1890, so I'm glad you said the when first, and now I've told everyone anyway that I was ignorant of that. But um, <laughs> what I know about naturalism is that it came after romanticism, and it was kind of um, a backlash, actually, to the optimistic, positive view of the world that the romantics held. Ah, uh, yes. And that was as a result of the way that things were going in America at the time because of the Industrial Revolution mm. of 1840. Mm. Okay. So there were like societal responses to the Industrial Revolution. And um, in mm. a nutshell, there was a feeling of alienation and um, mm. the individual, the American individual was kind of reeling from the fact that it had been an agrarian culture mm -hmm. and now it was urbanized. So there was lots of immigration, um, too many people in the cities, jobs were scarce, the individual kind of got swallowed up in crowds, faceless crowds, mm -hmm. and everyone was feeling alone and alienated and isolated, and that came through in the literature. And that was actually augmented because this all happens in the wake of Darwin's The Origin of Species. Yeah. And so his theory really reduced man to an evolved animal. Again, with the alienation, right? That's right, and with like the survival of the fittest mm -hmm. as well, with mm -hmm. um, all of the urbanization and the struggle for jobs with all of the immigration as well. So it was man in a concrete jungle. Right, exactly, a concrete jungle. Mm -hmm. So so this is part of the win of naturalism because the uh, Darwin's famous book was published in 1859 mm -hmm. and was immediately very influential and very successful in both Europe and America. Right, yeah. And so the period following 1859 it shows the shows the effects of his theories and their power, right? Yeah, and I don't know if this is what we want to talk about today, but Darwin's Origin of the Species kind of made people question, what is a man, really? Mm -hmm. And I think that naturalism is one man's answer or a generation of men's answer to that question. Yeah. What is a man, really? Mm. Just going with my, my previous idea that they're, they're it's a backlash from romanticism. The romantics would answer that question, what is a man, with, well, he's part and particle of God. He's divine. And yeah. so the individual is actually ultimately the most important thing in the whole universe right. to himself, right? right. He's self-sufficient in every way. And the naturalist, as we're going to see when we talk about the what, uh, answers quite differently. Uh. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because of the influence of Darwin, um, he would answer that man is just an accumulation of cells and neurological impulses that are basically inherited and so predetermined. This is Darwin. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So determinism, as Emil Zola said, governs everything. Let, let's get to Ian's question before we hit, we hit on Zola. I'm, I, I want to go to Zola, but we got to do Ian's question first. Go ahead, Ian. Well, and this is maybe more, I don't know how firmly this is connected to any one of our categories. So maybe it's a good question to get on the table early, but it occurred to me when we were having our um, romanticism discussion that romanticism itself was a particular response to the moral question, how should we live? Um, and to respond, well, you should suit yourself because you are an individual and the individual is the highest good unto himself mm -hmm. is one response to that question. It occurs to me that naturalism, even though we don't necessarily think about it in terms of morality, naturalism is a different response to that question. And I wonder if part of the impulse to write and think in that particular way is an impulse to evade the moral question. I wonder what you mm, guys think about that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. I, I don't know um, about an evasion of the moral question, but certainly 
the naturalists answered the question, how should we then live differently? And the answer that they would give is empathetically because we're all in the same um, horrible, horrible, Hor- horrible situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you might as well live empathetically because that's the best it's going to get. That's so interesting because that's not what I would have thought. I yeah, mean, just me hearing this, the thumbnail sketches of romanticism versus naturalism, you would think of the romantic as a, a beating heart who's compassion, who is love, who is all those sorts of things. And the naturalist as someone who is extremely cold, yeah. you know, looking I think, at the world as things will be what they will be. And so I guess I would have instinctively with the question of morality thought that the romantic would have strong opinions about that. And the naturalist would say morality, what is morality? We're animals. But it doesn't sound like that's what you think. Well, it's not what I think. It's what they wrote that that dictates my answer. I, I, I misspoke. Shots I'm fired. A, I've maybe mischaracterized those two different uh, <laughs> mindsets. Well, maybe the thing maybe the thing to do is to talk about the who. Then um, we've got the when late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. Mm-hmm. We're hedging towards the what of naturalism. What is it? It's a response to the condition of man, uh, shaped in part by the excesses of the industrial revolution and our reactions to that the ideas of Charles Darwin and writers' reactions to that. Mm-hmm. We'll get a little bit more specific as we go along, but let's go ahead and say, who are the naturalists? What names do we associate with the movement? Well, before we get into the names that we associate with the movement, I want to talk about Emile Zola, who essentially coined the term naturalism um, in a, a, a work of his called The Experimental Novel, written in 1880. Um the naturalist movement was a literary movement that emphasized observation and the scientific method in the portrayal, fictional portrayal uh-huh. of reality. Okay. And Zola wrote in this experimental novel, quote, in short, we must operate with characters, passions, human and social data as the chemist and physicist work on inert bodies, uh-huh. as the physiologist works on living bodies. Determinism governs everything. It is scientific investigation. It is experimental reasoning that combats one by one the hypotheses of the idealists and will replace novels of pure imagination by novels of observation and experiment. Wow. So the novels from this period pretty much um, put these characters in circumstances, right? To observe how they would react. To observe how they'll react. Exactly. And um, nature since man is just a product of nature, he's also a product of his surroundings. So he's a product, um, he inherits all his DNA, right? Yes. So his fate is predetermined in that way. And then whatever the environment that he's placed in or he finds himself in um, is also dictates what's going to happen with him. So he's a product of all these things. And the idea, I mean, there's no soul if he's just matter. He's a Darwinian uh, species. Exactly, exactly. So we've got this very indifferent nature. We've got um, man who's governed entirely by the flight and fight impulse. Right. And we get everything being um, random chance in our surroundings, except for the deterministic elements of our DNA. So this is Zola's, uh, he coins the phrase and he's describing as he's writing a, a school of literature or an approach to literature who are the main, uh, uh, maybe proponents is not the word I'm looking for, the main purveyors, the main artists in this period? Megan, give us a, give us a name that we, that, that we should recognize that's a naturalist. Um, the first one I always think of is Stephen Crane. Yeah, He's kind of, I don't know, he typifies the movement. And he has a couple of poems that are really, really short and kind of uh, exemplify everything about naturalism that I know. 
Um, is this a good time to share those? I think so. I mean, Stephen Crane, of course, is most famous for the novel, The Red Badge, the Red of, Badge Courage. of Courage. Yeah. But obviously poems are more accessible in this particular format than novels. So right. give us an example. Well, they're like really short. They're like four line poems. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, let me share this one with you first, because it goes off of what mom was just saying about um, naturalism being a study of nature's indifference to man, the individual. And man is like like an animal because of Darwin. He's, he's no different than an animal, except that he has this awareness of his state that makes it kind of horrifying that he's so unimportant in the face of the universe. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Crane says in a very short poem called A Man Said to the Universe, he says, A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. And that's the end of the poem. Whoa. And it's like, mic drop, so bleak, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's Crane but at his best. Yeah. I, he says similar things in The Open Boat. And I'll let you get to that in just a second. But I want to point out a couple things about this poem. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, in particular, the man says to the universe, sir, I exist. And it's, his tone is deferential from mm -hmm. the very beginning. He wow. says, I take the lower place. I'm not very important, and I know it in the grand scheme of things. But please recognize me. Give my life some meaning. And then the universe responds with, the fact is not created in me, a sense of obligation. So it's so pithy, but I think it, it contains in it all of the seeds of what we've been talking about. Mm. Man's state in the universe and the universe's response to him is totally different from romanticism. And we can imagine, uh, the, those of you who have either read or assigned to students his novel, The Red Badge of Courage, the, the germ of the idea in that very short poem you read, Oh yeah, you could say that it's been developed and extended throughout the pages of that novel. More yeah. or less the same concept, yes? Oh, with yeah. that scene with the dead body the in, the, in, the, in the woods. The and he describes cathedral. the woods like a cathedral, but the dead body is just rotten in there and yeah. nature doesn't care and there are ants crawling all over his... Oh, crawling in and out of his eye sockets. And it was really... Well, I wasn't going to go there, but we went. Yeah. But we went. <laughs> now, he's also famous for a, a poem called The Open Boat, or a short story called short The story. Open Boat, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, The Open Boat um, follows the aftermath of uh, shipwreck and you've got uh, several guys in a life raft trying to make it to shore. And it's, it's, um, it's a short story, but it takes a really long time for the climactic moment to occur. And I'm not going to, no spoilers here. But listen to this. This comes, this is a quote from The Open Boat. And I think you'll hear in it um, the same kinds of ideas that govern that poem that Megan just read. When it occurs to a man that nature does not regard him as important and that she feels she would not maim the universe by disposing of him, he at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temples. Any visible expression of nature would surely be pelleted with his jeers. Then, if there be no tangible thing to hoot, he feels... Perhaps the desire to confront a personification and indulge in please bowed to one knee and with hands supplicant saying, yes, but I love myself, mm. but I love myself. Mm. There's that again, <laughs> that same kind of an idea yeah. that crops up in your poem. Wow. So nature is indifferent. Um, it, it, and it, I think it's so interesting that he can't resist the impulse to personify nature. 
even though what he's saying is nature is not personified. There is no such right? thing as person. The right. universe responds with an almost godlike voice, even though Crane is purposefully taking God out of the picture. He's yes. saying there is no other person in this world. You're There's alone. just nature. Nature is God, yeah. and it doesn't care mm-hmm. because it's not human. Mm-hmm. There's no personality there. So I, oh, Sorry, go ahead, Megan, please. I, I'm thinking about something Ian said a minute ago about um, the difference in the emotion between the romantics and the naturalists and the fact that uh, empathy is is kind of a unifying trend between the two. The naturalists really are empathetic to one another, actually, in a horrible, cold kind of way. Even though they believe that man is isolated and alienated from everyone else, they're sad about it. Mm-hmm. They wish that one person could reach over their own boundaries to another and comfort because it is so alone. And they know that well, is it can't. possible from their perspective? No, no, and I have another poem for you just to to exemplify it. So, so just so we're clear, yeah. Ian's question is: Given this, the urge to want to connect with one another, is it Ian possible? Says, Ian says, in a naturalist world, is it possible given their assumptions? And you say no, right? Well, in other Crane words, no. In other words, are they experiencing all of these things from their own perspective in a vacuum? And here, this this mm. question will really bake your noodle. <laughs> um, Please, if they are if they are experiencing it in a vacuum, then where do they get off writing about it? I mean, assuming that they cannot reach out to one another and comfort one another, and that's an impossibility, and what are the poems it must for? be a singularly useless thing that they're doing, putting pen to paper, right? Well, it does kind of beg the question, doesn't it? It does. And but I read think, your poem. I want to hear it. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you, obviously. I'm not a naturalist, and I think they got it wrong. <laughs> but I do think that they they express themselves in a really pithy I appreciate naturalism because they're being so honest about the problem as they see it. Right. And they're, they're not, very direct. They're not beating about the bush. Yes. You can tell In a way exactly that maybe what they mean. aren't. You're right. 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 <laughs> Listen to this one. Stephen Crane says, I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never. You lie, he cried, and ran on. So again, maybe not much for form. Beauty. That's the whole thing. The end. That's the whole poem. Yeah, <laughs> but there's a sense of futility even before he actually says to the man, "It's futile." You've got this vision of a man racing after the horizon, and usually we think of the horizon as kind of a hopeful thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's racing the future, into the future, racing off into the sunset to the horizon. But this horizon is actually running from the man. Yeah, it will not be caught. Right. And so it is. There's a sense of futility from the beginning. But Crane's response is to step in. Maybe he represents the culture. Maybe he represents a fellow human being, community, Experience. He's society. He's the voice of experience, for sure. Maybe. I've heard it, I've heard it interpreted a variety of ways. But how, whoever he is, Crane steps in and wants to offer help and says, let me give you a hint. Give up now. Right. All the help I can give you is you're alone. You always will be. Stop running. Right. Yeah. And the man can't even hear that. He's actually isolated in his own little bubble and says, you lie, and runs on. There's not even companionship or empathy there. Well, at least not between those two individuals. I mean... Um, listen to this. This also comes from the open boat, and it's very similar to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, when it came night, the white waves paced to and fro in the moonlight, and the wind brought the sound of the great sea's voice to the men on shore, and they felt that they could then be interpreters. So after this entire event is over, the men that remained on the shore knew something. They had gained this experience that mm-hmm. now they could interpret the voice of the waves, that is, nature. Uh-huh. They knew nature. They'd seen nature. Now they understood. Mm-hmm. So understanding, you can arrive at understanding. It comes through harrowing experience. And those who've not yet had those experiences run away. They don't want to hear. They, they put their hands over their ears. 
um, their hands over their eyes. And they can don't you wish blame to know. Them? No, the response of those men, what they know is that it is futile. Yeah. And who wants to hear that? Yeah, and the, the, just the indifference. You keep making these comparisons between naturalism and the romantics before them, and I think it's um, it's really worth looking at that because yeah. with the romantic movement, you've got all of nature imbued with the spirit, mm-hmm. the spark of the divine. The supernatural is yes. combined with the natural everywhere. So you get Wordsworth's netting where he goes into the woods, and there's this secret bower, and he finds himself in the middle of this bower, and it's pristine and virginal, and there's a spirit there that like ministers to his soul right. and renews him. Not so for the naturalists. Instead, we get this. The boat was headed for the beach. The correspondent wondered if none ever ascended the tall wind tower. And if, then, they never looked seaward. This tower was a giant standing with its back to the plight of the ants. So there it is. You know, you've got this wind tower there on land. And then you've got these men out in a boat and their ants. And their their existence is described as a plight. Yeah. That's significant. He says, yeah. it represented in a degree to the correspondent who's on this boat, the serenity of nature amid the struggles of the individual. Nature in the wind and nature in the vision of men. She did not seem cruel to him then, nor beneficent, nor treacherous, nor wise. But she was indifferent, flatly indifferent mm-hmm. thus nature thus the thus, world thus the naturalism yes. and thus stephen crane because yes. really that's all we've those are the only excerpts we yeah. have right so what i want to know is is stephen crane the the sole proprietor of naturalism is there yeah. are there other titles other authors maybe that we should that we should uh know about and, and maybe even before i do that maybe what we need is a little levity lobbed <laughs> over the walls of this conversation um Emily, you got any jokes for us? <laughs> uh, how little I know about this subject is well, a joke. <laughs> Nicely Self-deprecation done. and a joke at once. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that you, since I have you on the, on the mic, that you would prefer Shakespeare to the naturalists, yes? <laughs> no, I actually really like Stephen Crane. I prefer their honesty. Uh-huh. Well, there's certainly and, that the and whole obvi- reporter and, style. Yeah, obviously, obviously, I don't think that they have the capital T truth, but but they are open about the suffering of the world, which I think is the first step toward a better capital T truth. Yeah, yeah. W- would you prefer them in just along that same line in terms of their style and their approach to the truth to the romantic impulse, for example? I really do. And I think that might just be an artistic preference on my part, but we're moving more and more towards the pithy, uh, direct style of Ernest Hemingway, obviously predating him. But I I do like the way that the Americans are becoming more and more spare. Mm -hmm. I think I concur with that. Yeah. I, um, I'm with Twain on uh, James Fenimore Cooper, the ultimate American romantic. And uh, I really would prefer, even though, even though, Stephen Crane turns my stomach in places. I think Emily's right about the direct style and the unflinching willingness to tell the truth from your own philosophical position. I think their prose really the other, sparkles. The other yes. thing I think is really... Yes. Go ahead, Ian. Sorry. Right. No, agreed. The prose is is spectacular. But the other thing I think is interesting, that intrigues me at least, is that um, the naturalists are, well, on the one hand, opposed to having theological conversation but then also can't really avoid it because the claim that they're making is so very theological in nature. Right. And they don't actually get it all wrong. 
in fact, one of the central tenets of, if I understand the two of you correctly, of what they believe about the world is that um, that the actions of man and his thinking about his doing and all of his doing, those two categories of things, his doing and his thinking about doing, are ineffective in the grand in a grand sense. Mm. And that has a shred of theological truth to it. There's yeah. a sense in which the God that we're addressing, it's an open question as to whether he regards your actions and your thoughts and your deeds or he doesn't. And there's a variety of different interpretations of that question. But um, I think the naturalistic one is interesting. I think it's very interesting. Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that before. That's that's something to ponder. Um, while I do, however, name me another naturalist. I mean, the fact is, if we've got a whole literary period that just has Stephen Crane in it, we may be doing a podcast uh, um, under false pretenses. Who oh, are no. the other naturalists no, we got to no, pay no. attention to? We got some more of those. We got um, Bret Hart, Peter Ambrose Dreiser. Bierce, and an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Anybody? What a, that's, what a, wow, that's pull the rug out from under you, man. Uh, we can't talk too much about Jeez. that, though, because that's all well, about that one you don't want to give away, but that, uh, talk about sparkly prose. Yeah. That one's so pretty fascinating. Bret Hart, Theodore Dreiser, Ambrose Bierce, those are all obviously writers in this period. Those are all Americans. Short stories are their metier, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. For the most part. What about, um, what is her name? Sarah something. Sarah Orange No? No, that's not who you're thinking of. No, with the, the yellow wallpaper. Have oh. you read that one? Yes. Who wrote that? Oh my gosh. That one is so creepy. You guys go and read. It's about a woman who goes crazy and her family locks her in the attic because they think that's more humane than sending her to a loony bin and you're inside the crazy woman's mind. And by the end, you think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrifying, I've read that. That's terrifying. So really um, terrifying. I'm a what about, isn't, isn't Kate, isn't Kate Chopin, um, the awakening, isn't that is Isn't that, that a, a naturalist work that's as well? The begin- that's the tail end of um, the Victorian period, and she's certainly moving towards realism, literary realism. But realism came between romanticism and yes. naturalism, right? Yes, it, it was did. more like the Mark Twain era. Yep. So you can think of naturalism as kind of uh, realism so gone to seed. Right? It's realism plus Darwin equals naturalism, kind of. Yeah, it's, like it's very pessimistic. Realism. You know, I'm surprised. George Becker, so she, this, this critic, said that it was pessimistic materialistic determinism. Yeah. Okay. And here's here's this other guy, Eric Sundquist. He's he's also a critic. He says this. Reveling in the extraordinary, the excessive, and the grotesque in order to reveal the immutable bestiality of man and nature, naturalism dramatizes the loss of individuality at a physiological level by making a Calvinism without God its determining order and violent death its utopia. Mm. Whoa. How do you like Um, that? (laughs) That sounds great. That makes me wonder why Emily likes it. Do you want me to read that again? I, I, well, I'm just I, I want to go. I want to go to bat with you over Kate uh, Chopin for just a second because, um, well, she lived from 1850 to 1904, making her a direct contemporary of both Zola and Crane, and she's number three on the list of naturalist authors as I search the Google. So, what is it that makes her not a naturalist? The Google. The Google. Well, maybe I misspoke. I mean, I shouldn't have. I actually wrote I mean, my thesis on her in college, so you well, know. I know the re- kind of the reason I was. That's hoping a bad that on me. A conversation. You wrote a thesis on her in college, and so. <laughs> so I should know better. I feel like is what you're saying. Be on the same page about this. Wow. <laughs> well, all that I can tell you, Ian, is the that I'm old. Is hanging in the window. I'm. Let's see. I wrote that thesis 27, 28 years ago, and I don't think I've looked at it since. So <laughs> well, that, that's my excuse. Read, though, the quotation that you just read. 
does a lot to interpret her work, I think. I mean, she writes a lot about that idea. She's still, as well, frankly, as most artists are, she's still obsessive about the individual and mm -hmm. and a person thinking about themselves and thinking about their thinking. But the solution that she offers, as I mean, as poor as the solution is, um, lines up with that quotation pretty directly. Yeah, I think so too. I can see that. I, you know, I guess I'm thinking more about her literary style, which was very romantic in form. That's true. She's definitely a stylist from another era. That's for sure. Um, I'm surprised so far that nobody has mentioned a, an author in this connection that I think might be more well known to many bibliophiles listeners, and maybe even more to the point in terms of what we're reading and having our students read. And that's Jack London. Oh yeah. Does Jack London make the list of naturalists that we want to consider? I mean, I mean, his concerns seem to be the same, right? If you, if you take his short stories, uh, the, he's certainly a naturalist. the white, you know, the white fang, the ones about the, the wolf dogs and in particular his short story to build a fire, right. which is sort of his flagship story about the guy who has struggles with freezing cold in his journey through the Yukon territory. It has, it touches all the check boxes or, or checks all the boxes that we've been talking about, a, uh, kind of a pessimistic determinism, mm -hmm. the consideration of man as an animal, um, the indifference in particular, the indifference of the universe, not even that it has a personality, but it's just supremely indifferent to the plight of the human creature. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. He just didn't pop into my head. But but here's the reason I think London might be interesting to consider because a lot of people read his stories, the White Fang books, for example, and they think, wow, cool, adventure stories for boys, you right. know, about, about uh, men trying to survive in the wilderness and feats of strength and daring do and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I want, except so pessimistic in terms they all of die. the analysis of what a man is and what he can expect. Didn't, didn't we give you a Jack London story when you were little, Ian, that you loved? Oh, yeah. Was it? Uh, sea yeah. Wolf or sea, something like sea that. Wolf. It was the yeah. Sea Wolf, which I still, to this very day, and here's here's something for you listeners to chew on. <laughs> I, have, I have issued a, a family-wide, in our extended family as well, request for someone to read that book so we could have a conversation about it. And it has not happened to this very day. And that's been more than 10 years ago. Well, can you blame us? It's naturalism. All of our listeners will you now say, why it. would that we ever read great. it? it won't, it's also the root of one, one of the things I happen to think about, um, about London, which is that he is, uh, even though I think you're right to say that he's kind of the guy that sums this up along with the other people we've talked about, Crane in particular, he is a whole level of more perceptive and more feeling and more emotionally aware than Stephen Crane, I think. What do you mean um, by that? I mean that there's a lot more, and Megan, you were saying just a second ago that there's a sort of a collective weeping at the human condition right. in naturalism. Yeah. And I think that's definitely true. But the weeping is about the fact that there aren't any answers. And in The Sea Wolf, one of the things that London does is say, except maybe there are. Hmm. some answers. And I've never heard another naturalist put it quite that way before. But since none of you have read The Sea Wolf, you don't know what I'm talking about. Well, so. all I know is that, yeah, you're right, Ian, and mea culpa. And it was more <laughs> than 10 years ago because you were something like 12. It was more like 15 years ago. But um, but London, certainly in the stories that I've read, doesn't hint at anything except the kind of inhuman indifference of the universe that mom was describing reading Zola and those other critics. So does London... Uh, mend his ways toward the end of his career or is he just more multifaceted than I know? Cause I haven't read the sea wolf yet. I, I mean, I don't feel like I'm 
really qualified to answer that question. I think you should go read London. <laughs> I think I have an assignment. Yeah, I think you do too. You've been assigned. I don't think London mends his ways so much. He's just interested in the questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, despite what we think and how we decide to define humanity from generation to generation, we are all human and we can't help it. Right. <laughs> you know, the questions remain and we must ask them. Speaking of questions, then let me ask a question of you all. Um, and I think we ask this, we probably ask this during every lit period episode, but the, the works of American literature say that fall into this naturalist category, the works of Crane and Bret Hart and Theodore Dreiser and Ambrose Bierce and Jack London and Kate Chopin. Um, should we be reading them and should we be assigning them to students that may be taking their lessons from us? If they are as dark and depressing and I don't know what other adjective you want to assign to them as it sounds like they are. Well, it depends on your, it depends on your idea of what a teacher ought to be. What, what is a literary education? What should it look like? What's it for? Mm -hmm. If your if your idea of teaching is purely didactic, that is to say, if you're reading literature and the goal of literature is to um, make a moral person of an individual, then maybe you could make the case that, that you don't want to read any work of literature that depicts immorality or that um, suggests something that is counter to the capital T truth. On the other hand, um, who was it that said you can learn a lot more from a bad book than a good one? And I mean by bad, not written poorly, but a book that maybe holds up ideas that are counter to yeah. mm-hmm. what you and I would understand to be the capital T truth. Right. You know, right. Um, I think that by reading the literary naturalists and learning to ask the questions with them, hearing the way that their presuppositions about the world, which are purely atheistic, inform the way they answer those questions, inevitably um, gives us gives us sympathy for them. Right. Because the questions that they ask are real and they follow naturally if you assume atheism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The end is this kind of despair where the best you can hope for is that somebody will empathize with you. And the best you can do is to develop this thing that the critics now call a negative capability, an ability to live in a meaningless universe as though the things that you were doing all day long actually had some meaning. Right. I think my first response when dad asked the question was, of course we should teach these books because otherwise, chronologically, we miss a step in the history of American thought in particular. Absolutely. And Ernest Hemingway doesn't make as much sense. I was going to ask you in particular, Megan, because you're going to go um, take a job in the fall teaching English to seniors in high school. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you if there's going to be a representative naturalist work on your reading list. And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's important. Um, I actually am going to use Stephen Crane because I think he's the clearest iteration of the ideas. But I think it's really significant that you talk about Crane first because Hemingway is doing his very best to do what mom just said, which is with this assumption that atheism really is the truth about the world. Um, Here's the problem asserted by Crane very clearly. Hemingway agrees with Crane that that's the way the world is, and he tries to offer a solution. And it's really bleak and really hollow, but he says grace under pressure is the only way that you can live a fulfilling life um, because there's nothing afterward. It's just the natural world. So do the best you can, exhibit grace as you die. 
And that's a horrible thing and very bleak and comes out of left field if you didn't know naturalism was a thing before. Gotcha. Okay. So basically what she's saying is that the reason you study the literary naturalists is because you study literature to get the intellectual history, right, of Western society. I mean, hopefully what you get at the end of a quick study, one year's worth of study of American literature is you're brought up to the present day to our current answer for what is an American? What is a man? According to the American mind. Mm -hmm. And you can interact with your own culture with humility and empathy and thoughtfulness and maybe even bring grace into it. Maybe encourage your fellow man, you know, right. because the I, knowing where he came from. The presuppositions are inherently flawed. Of course. Now I, I see this answer and I think this answer is, is really substantial. And I think it's, it's worth, I think it's one great answer to the question. Why read the naturalist? But I, I suspect that there's at least one more. And Emily, I wonder if you could comment on this. Is there a way that the naturalists and maybe the the mid twentieth century Hemingwayites that follow, I don't know what you call them. We'll get to the that lost later. Generation. The yeah. modernists. Um the modernists maybe. Is there a way that they do more than just provide us a glimpse into a particular period of intellectual history? In other words, do they actually either ask the questions or answer them in a unique way that is fruitful and productive in and of itself? How would you answer that, Emily? Well, I find their work really compelling because in some ways they're right. That's what it feels like to live in this world. I mean, it's it's false to say that it, it feels like there's a God all the time that mm-hmm. is present and active and personal. And the truth is it, it really does sometimes feel like the universe is indifferent to whatever you do. Mm-hmm. And the extent to that they portray that suffering, they're right. And it doesn't I mean, empathy, I would expand on the empathy idea that was brought up and say that it's empathy, not because I can pity them, but because I've felt that before. Right, of course. And they express that in a way that the romantics and many who came before them really missed. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. Yeah, another great reason, I think. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, Ian, a question for you, uh, having to do with the extent to which you think the naturalist impulse is still reflected in the art that's being produced today. Would you say that it is, or would you say that we've passed it by? Uh, That's an interesting question. I mean, I think naturalism takes on, um, well, I'll take a step back. I think that as we watch, as we watch art developing um, from a historical perspective across history, we see everyone, talking about the same set of basic ideas. That's why the great conversation about literature is so much fun to have among us all here on this podcast. And I think that the naturalists give a slightly different answer to the same set of questions than the romantics do, but importantly, they're asking the same set of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're asking them today as well. And the blend of answers that we're seeing borrows from both. I mean, we are absolutely a culture of individualism, a culture in which self-actualization is a term that we use interchangeably with freedom, hmm. um, which I don't think is necessarily true or borne out uh, <laughs> by a reading of history or of mm-hmm. theology or really anything else. Yeah, And I think that that borrows from romanticism, right? Borrows from mm-hmm. the ideas of the romantics. The other thing, however, that we would love to think in our culture, according to the art that we're producing, is that uh, morality and spirituality, questions of religion and and how one ought to live, are not valid questions to ask. Because we don't want the individual restricted by any of those things, we'd very much rather live in a world where cause and effect is all, 
And so I think we're equally naturalistic in that way. So I suppose, um, I suppose yes, is the answer to your question. Yes. Mm. Yes. All of those things. Wow. Great. Thank you. Uh, that brings up another question in my head. Is it true? Probably if it's true of naturalism, is it true of all the other periods that we've been talking about in this podcast? Do, does the influence of a particular generation of ideas, is it, is it eternal? Does it last forever? Do, do, are there, are there hints of all the previous periods of intellectual history cropping up in ours? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think mm-hmm. absolutely. Don't you guys think so? Yeah. Well, my, my instinctive answer would be surely, surely it does. And not just because eighth graders have to read Homer still, but because Homer was asking universal questions in universal ways that still crop up in his, his idiom. If we really believe that each generation reacts to the things that the previous generation thought and said, right. Right. In their art, in their music, in their literature and culture. Right. Um, to some extent, we're all a product of our culture to one degree or another, and we're acting and reacting. Yes. Mm-hmm. As we ask those questions, um, our answers are informed by the capital T truth that we think we have mm-hmm. and by the answers that our forebearers had. And contained within our forebearers' response is the action and reaction that they had to the generation preceding them, which, you know, it goes back ad infinitum to early literature, early culture. And not just you know? in contradicting the previous generation, no. but in bearing the unconscious marks of it. Maybe. Yeah, this is why it's so important for us to be studying literature. Right. This is why literature, why art is so significant to our students, yeah. because otherwise they're going to be walking around ignorant um, in the culture that they're in. They're going to be enculturated in large part. They're going to be um, subject to the culture, acting and reacting alone instead of intentionally engaging with the questions of the culture and noticing how their response is similar to and different from what came before, how their response has been informed by what came before. Um, I think it was T.S. Eliot that said that um, we in the present stand on the shoulders of giants. We've inherited so much of what we know or think we know from the people that came before us. And um, it's folly, it's presumptuous, it's arrogant to think that the thoughts of the men that are dead and gone um, don't have anything to do with us. Or that don't last beyond their deaths. That they don't last beyond their deaths, that they're passe. They right. live. They live in our present culture mm-hmm. and in our own responses. And if we learn the landscape, um, we'll, we'll better be able to traverse it. Yeah. And on the other hand, we'll also be able to um, hear what unique contributions they made, unique answers to the questions that they posed. Yes. Um, regardless of their philosophical commitments. That's really yeah, and I would say, um, you know, Emily's talking about the empathy that the naturalists basically brought to the table, right? Because of their ability to realistically depict the human experience, and when we read the naturalists, hopefully, we come away with that same kind of empathy from rubbing shoulders with them. Mm. Wow. Thank you, guys. Great contributions. That's um, very thought-provoking. I appreciate your your um, input, all four of you. And thanks for the bricks that were thrown over the wall, the, the comedic bricks and otherwise. <laughs> thanks you, thank you to all of you listening to Bibliophiles Lit Period, this episode on naturalism. 
we will, given the success of this discussion, probably go back at it before too long and pick another period, maybe the modernist that came right after. Oh, I thought you were going to say, given the success of this one, we'll have to take another shot at naturalism later on. Oh, no way. I thought it was great. <laughs> I, I was given the fact it. that mom completely laid an egg, we'll just have to do a different <laughs> subject next time. No, thank you indeed for your attention, for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to rate it at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. They're going to give me another script for that little uh, blurb one of these times (laughs) so I can say it correctly. But we are glad to hear your feedback, glad to have your participation online. If if you're interested in what Center for Lit is doing for readers and teachers and parents of all stripes, you can visit us on the web at centerforlit.com. And until we meet again, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>